0: And I said, if we get a third dog, I'm going to get a chicken.
1: Uh, Just one chicken?
0: Well, that I didn't know. You can't just have one chicken. Little did I know when I showed up at the Lascados Hardware Store where they sell little baby chicks, you can't have one. You
1: can't have one.
0: They're social. They're flocks. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road.
2: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing.
0: Rebecca Lynn used to run a nuclear reactor. She's now partner at Canvas Ventures and number 31 on Forbes' list of money-making venture capitalists, the Midas List. Do you take pride in that? Do you take it seriously? Do you not pay attention to it?
1: I mean, I, I do take. I take. I take pride in it. I think it's great to uh, to be sort of in that list. Uh, investors, I can tell you my mom is very proud that that's where I'm at. Um, but at the same time, it's always about, you know, forward thinking things like what are you doing, you know, today, tomorrow and the future and uh, and not sort of like, resting on that accomplishment.
0: Well, ha- being number 31 is like having two Michelin stars. So, you know, it's <laughs> better than having one, <laughs> but it's not quite three. It's not
1: quite three. But you could make three. One. Yeah, you could. You could. You could go up. But I think um, it's it's sort of an afterfact. Like you have to spend every day just doing the best job you can do, and uh, it's sort of like when I was in college, when I made my fat my absolute best grades is when I never didn't pay attention. I just did what I was doing because I loved doing it. So I always think about that. I like, to, uh, I like to focus on what I'm doing just because I enjoy my job and not on the rating I get.
0: Well, and the, this is the equivalent grade of you once said that uh, the only metric that matters is what you return to the limited partners. It, that's
1: our job. Absolutely. Our job is returning money to our limited partners and helping our entrepreneurs succeed. And by helping our entrepreneurs succeed, we return money to our limited partners. So it's a great uh, non-confusing goal.
0: (laughs) I don't doubt that you are very proud with changing the world and making the world a better place, but it is refreshing to, to hear somebody finally say, Well, no, we're here to make a lot of money for the people who gave us money and trusted us with that money.
1: Well, and for me, it's really interesting. Um, When we look at who we make money for... We, we have a lot of endowments, we have foundations, we have pensions. Those are the people, and I think that, that's not well understood, but those are the people who are our limited partners. Those are the people who we're actually making money for to continue to fuel their charities, to continue to help them do the public good that they do. And so when we look for limited partners, it's one of my criteria. Because right now, you know being the mom of three kids, doing this full-time, you know, and and everything else that I'm, I'm involved in, I don't have the time I wish I had to do my not-for-profit work and to do my sort of world-changing, you know, uh, do good work. And so I see that as my day job. And so I, I do think that, you know, when it comes to RLPs and what our job is, it really is, those are the interests that we actually do make money for.
0: There is some questionable money coming into Silicon Valley. There's a lot of money in Silicon Valley right now. I'm thinking specifically sovereign wealth funds, and I won't give any names out necessarily, but that might be something you'd hesitate to take?
1: I would hesitate to take any money from an organization where the values weren't aligned. I really would. And we do the same thing with startups. We we back startups that we feel really good about what they're doing. And so there are, there are startups where are like, wow, they're going to make a lot of money, but that just isn't, that's not what we do.
0: You've seen a number of companies you've funded be acquired, Check and Future Advisor and Relate IQ. And
1: then, and uh, Figure 8. And Figure 8. Yeah.
0: Talk to me about the role of a venture capitalist takes in the acquisition of a company that she's funded, because you're looking for returns the same way a real estate agent is looking for a percentage. So there is a temptation to tell the founder, let's sell, because that's a big amount of money. The founder might say, no, I'm not ready yet. You have a vested interest in selling.
1: Sometimes. uh, Sometimes not. Sometimes we think uh, it's better to go the distance and to keep going. So when you look at each one of those acquisitions, they all had very unique circumstances around it. And when when a company comes to talk about acquisition, um, there's a conversation that happens with the founder and, quite frankly, with the founding team in terms of, you know, how are you feeling about this? Where, you know, where do you want to take this company? What are the risks? You know, what are, what, what do you want to have in your life? And it's really hard when a, when an acquirer comes in, there are a couple of cases that you listed and I won't name which ones, where we felt like there was even more opportunity. But for the founder, it was life-changing money, right? And so I'm really pragmatic, especially coming from where I came from. I have a lot of respect for what that means to an individual. And their risk basis might be different than mine. So I see it as incredibly collaborative, right, in terms of whether or not it's the right time and the right acquirer that we want to pursue. So we have several conversations about, you know, is this right? And if the, if the founding team is like, go. And the rest of the board is go, that's when I like to move into action. And I love to help sell companies. And so I, I like the negotiation and sort of part of the deal. So I think if you talk to any of the founders that were involved in that process, um, they'll tell you that's really where I, I like to get involved. And I help with the strategy and, and lining people up. And you know, Future Advisor was really a, a great example. Uh, John Mack and I had become friends on the board of, of uh, Lending Club. And he became an advisor to future advisor and really helped us with that whole process in terms of, you know, who do we want to talk to? How do we want? And we were talking about strategic partnerships and he was helping us with that. And then suddenly it turned into an acquisition offer. And that was really interesting.
2: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
0: I listed some of your big successes. You mentioned Lending Club. IPO'd at $15 a share. Last I checked was trading under $3 a share. Oh, wow.
1: I haven't checked in a long time. Okay. Was that a win for you? Absolutely. Um, Yes. We came in really early at the Series B, Right. And I sold a piece of that company at like a one point six billion dollars valuation a, a year win. a year before it goes public, right? And so I sold about thirty percent of it then. And then the next then went public at around a billion six. And so then I sold a bunch more and was out of it before they started kind of having problems because one of the things, that might be unique about us is that we're very focused on what we're good at and what we do. So we are series A and B investors, right? Uh, we're not public market investors. And so we know that, again, our LPs want public market investors to do public market investments. And so we, um, we tend to start you know, kind of phasing out as that company gets closer and closer in most cases. And so, yeah, I mean, going from like 20-ish million to a billion six is pretty good.
0: I'd call that a win. That's a win. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You mentioned that you're very focused. And I've noticed that a lot of your portfolio is, is, you know, fintech and insurance and wealth advising and that kind of thing. And then there's OWL. Explain what Owl and is. And Luminar,
1: you forgot Luminar. Yeah, Luminar yeah, there, there, there are too, a
0: but, but but Owl, explain what Owl okay, is. Okay, I
1: will explain Owl, but let me tell you a little bit about the scatter. So, I use I mean, I love um, sort of edge technology.
0: Now, I'm going to jump in here. She doesn't actually explain what Owl is. It's a very cool smart dash cam for your car.
1: And when I was a chemical engineer, I worked at a nuclear research reactor where we had a ton of edge technology. We had, you know, the O-rings from NASA. We had space crystals. We had, you know, amazing stuff. And I... I love that. And so I think in every portfolio, you're going to see something of that, right? And I also had uh, a consumer product background with Procter & Gamble. And so I have looked at a lot of the companies and the consumer hardware companies that have ended up doing well, like Fitbit and, and Dropcam and those. But we we sort of didn't do them at that point in time, right? Which, you know, here we are. So um, So anyway, so with Owl, Um, they came to me through an Apple reference that I had. Andy, the founder, is an ex-Apple guy. Amazing team and it just made a ton of sense, right? It made a ton of sense that you know, really security and video and all that, you need it in the car more than you need it in the home in terms of the damages that you have happen in the car, in terms of the life-threatening issues that happen in your vehicle. Um, the, the car is really where it's at, far beyond home security. And so the technology is actually really, really, really hard because it's continuous streaming into the cloud of this video. And so uh, when, they, when they came to me, I actually looked at the earlier round, the A, and we didn't quite get there. And um, my friend Trey at Defy did. She's a product person, an ex-Kleiner. She actually did Nest when she was a Kleiner. And so um, then when the next round came around, we jumped in. So that that's Owl.
0: Me again. Trey, who Rebecca mentions there, is Trey Vasella, and we'll have her on the podcast in just a few weeks. Rebecca got her start at Procter & Gamble, the toothpaste and soap company. P&G.
1: Yeah, otherwise known as Prophet and God. Yes, (laughs) exactly.
0: You were at Procter & Gamble, where my understanding is you sold products into Latin America?
1: Right. I was actually on, uh, I worked out of Cincinnati, so I worked out of the mothership and was in the uh, research and development and branding kind of area of P&G. So when I was there, I was in paper. We weren't in Latin America yet. So I actually got to be on the new market entry team. To launch new products in new markets, which okay. was phenomenal.
0: Rebecca, I'm so excited to ask this question. Oh no,
1: <laughs> here did it you, comes.
0: Did you sell Febreze in Belize?
1: I did not sell Febreze in Belize, but <laughs> but I was there when they were uh, trying to really figure out the messaging around Febreze, which was which
0: was really interesting.
1: <laughs> He's cracked himself up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I w- I would imagine that. TEACHES YOU, BECAUSE IT IS SUCH A HOUSEHOLD <laughs> COMPANY, Yes, uh, IT TEACHES YOU A LOT ABOUT uh, CONSUMER BEHAVIOR AND WHAT SELLS AND WHAT DOESN'T.
1: YOU KNOW WHAT IT TAUGHT? I MEAN, IT TOTALLY DOES. IT, t- it TELLS ME A COUPLE THINGS. Uh, ONE THING IT TELLS ME, WHICH I THINK MANY VCs ON SANDHILL FORGET OFTEN, IS I AM NOT THE TARGET MARKET. IT DOESN'T MATTER AT ALL WHAT I THINK. I THINK, they think THIS IS THE NEXT bang PRODUCT, WHATEVER. Um, but it doesn't matter. What matters is what the consumers think and who, who this target market is. And so often I hear VCs saying, well, my family. I'm like, well, your family is not uh, middle America and the target market. So that it's, it's irrelevant, right? And they judge it through that lens. And uh, I think that's a big miss. And when you see a lot of money going into a startup and you're kind of scratching your head, and there have been a few of those. Um, I call it like uh, tech gone wild, kind of. Yes. Um, that's that's often what happens. And then the other lesson at Procter and Gamble that I've learned is customers don't want a bunch of options; they want freedom from choice, not freedom of choice. And when you see this really play out, it's just Apple versus Google, right? Apple nailed, you know, freedom of choice. Just do it. Freedom it, from do, choice. A freedom, yeah, freedom yeah. from choice. And uh, you know, do it like I think it should work, right? Whereas Google thinks, you know, people want every whiz-bang option, and they don't. They want people to, you know, keep it simple, essentially, and give me, you know, freedom from choice and make my life better. And that's what consumers are looking for.
0: You mentioned earlier you are a chemical engineer. You thought about being a nuclear engineer, uh, you know, at, at risk of sort of making some sort of metaphor stretch. Is there any connection between that and what you do now?
1: Um. You know, I think the biggest connection is just what I was drawn to, and it's all the new science and new ideas, and I, I, I love that when I was uh, at the research reactor. And the other thing, too, is that when you look even at who, like, a Procter & Gamble hires, right, as new product people and people that develop, you know, the, the company, even their brand managers, a huge majority of those are chemical engineers, and it's because we have to take you know a little bit of everything. We take coding, we take organic chemistry, uh, we take you know materials, and we take all of those things. And so, uh, and we also have to develop all the models behind it. And so, it's really interesting in terms of um, you know in terms of looking at different things all the time. It sort of prepares you for that. And I that's I mean, every day I'm looking at, you know, things that are incredibly diverse, as you pointed out, from a camera to uh, wealth management. So <laughs> it prepared me for that.
0: Is there anything you can tell me about your days at, at PG that would PNG? PNG uh, not
1: not the energy company. That's
0: yeah, right. Yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> Don't get me started on the fires. and <laughs> yeah, <in> that. Exactly.
0: <laughs> Is there anything from your days at P&G that you can tell me about that's no longer secret, something where we you came up with an idea that didn't work? Because it's fascinating the ideas that come out of there, you know, the Febreze and the Swiffer and the things that have become household names in which you think, I can't believe somebody said, you know, let's get a spray and it just <laughs> smells good and we will market it.
1: Yeah. You know, I learned a lot. I don't know if there's any double top secret thing, I can tell you. Um, You know, the one thing I think as I'm diving into a lot of this functional medicine area is one of the products they were launching or talking about launching when I was there was this product called Alestra. And I don't know if you've heard of that product or not. This is
0: the one that was in the potato chips.
1: Yeah. With the side effect. Now you're just like, you think about it, you're like, oh my God, did they think this was a good idea, right? And it was uh, like this long chain fat that basically the theory was if people ate potato chips with this kind of fat... Um, they wouldn't. They wouldn't digest it, so they could have as many potato chips as you possibly wanted. But there was this little anal leakage issue that was uh, that was a side effect. And the fact that it was ever that good of an idea to have that many carbs just blows my mind, right? And now you read all this information on other kinds of fats, like Crisco and Wesson oil and all these things that have this ridiculous omega-6 content, right? Right. And um, and you think, God, that just that's a really bad idea, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so uh, I, have, I have now eliminated all of those fats from my household, and we were back literally to like animal fats and coconut oil and things like that, because that's what what uh, people actually should be eating.
0: You grew up on a farm in Missouri. I and did. you now have animals of your own <laughs> at your at your home. Uh, what, two chickens?
1: Do you want me to go through the cadre?
0: I would love for you to go okay, through the cadre. Okay, so
1: so here's the truth. So I actually loved living in San Francisco, really loved it. And so I'm a city girl, or I think, um, or I just kind of go the other way, right, with country. And so when we moved out with kid three, which most people do, it's the joke in San Francisco. What do all five-year-olds get, you know, for their birthday in San Francisco, a new zip code? Um, That's what happened here. And so we moved south and, and really loved it and wanted to really embrace it, right? Because what we were giving up in the city were the museums and the shows and all the educational and cultural stuff. And so you know my kids love being outside and I loved having animals when I was little so we went, we embraced that and it started out really innocently with a few chickens and then an incubation project. So I had my daughter actually make her own incubator from scratch with a thermocouple and all of that when she was like eight. So she learned how to do that. So then, of course, I had to support you know, the quail that we got next. <laughs> and then um, now we have, I think you know, the numbers of chickens vary depending upon the predator issues happening at any point in time. But we have about eight chickens. We have a peahen that we rescued from the SPCA. We have two parakeets, four horses. Uh, a cat, a dog, and I think that's where we're at right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I and think the, that's where we're at.
0: And the chickens are egg-laying chickens? Oh, or? yeah, they,
1: they lay eggs. They do tricks. Well, I right. guess the other side <laughs> is
0: that they could be meat chickens.
1: Well, that doesn't happen in our household, right? They're all they're all pets. I had, they're uh, all pets.
0: I had, uh, I had two dogs. My, my sons wanted another dog. Yeah. My wife said that she would get them another dog. And I said, if we get a third dog, I'm going to get a chicken.
1: Uh, just one chicken?
0: Well, that I didn't know. You can't I didn't, just have one chicken. Little did I know when I showed up at the Los Gatos <laughs> hardware store where they sell little baby chicks, you can't have one. Just you
1: can't have one. They're social. They're flocks.
0: Right. So I ended up with two chickens. <laughs> just, Chels, Chelsea and, and, uh, and uh, what was it? Chelsea and, there was another ch sound that we made oh, it out of chicken.
1: Nice. Yes. Yeah, we always joke we're going to name it like fricassee, yeah. you know, and the kids don't think that's so funny. But um, yeah, you're lucky you didn't end up with roosters, because then you have a whole different problem of how Yeah, to, I think you
0: live farther out in the country than yes, I do. How yes, how
1: to... Uh, we have, you have to do the rooster giveaway thing, and that, that's never so fun. <laughs>
0: There, we were talking earlier about how there's so much uh, venture capital money out there. Yeah. Is VC money to some degree propping up some of these businesses? I know when you look over Uber and Lyft's you know, reports, they appear to be losing money on every ride, which logically means that venture capital is actually subsidizing my Uber ride or my Lyft ride. I prefer Lyft. Is subsidizing my Lyft ride. I realize you're not an investor in Uber and Lyft, but all of a sudden I have this fear that some of what we're seeing is just subsidized companies.
1: It's funny, there was an entrepreneur that came and told me this the other day. He's like, I have a phenomenal life in Silicon Valley. You know, DoorDash subsidizes food delivery, Uber and Lyft subsidize all of my ride stuff. Uh, you know, I, 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 I can't answer that question for you. I wish I could. I, I, I always think maybe I'm missing something. I, and, and uh, you know, maybe that that's we did Luminar, right, which is in the autonomous space, which is how they're telling us it's going to work out in the future. I, I love Uber and Lyft. I also like Lyft better. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I, I don't. I wish I. I wish well, I had more insight. Well, and I don't insight. mean
0: Uber and Lyft specifically necessarily, um, but, but almost gee-
1: everyone going public, right? Yeah. 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 No, I, I. I don't disagree with that. Um, you know, you then they always point to Amazon, right? right. Of you know, here's an example. Um, although I, I feel like Amazon always had a way if they needed to go get profitable quickly, they could, right? And they were investing in expansion. So you know, I don't. I don't know. I don't. I, it's not typically, um, how I like to invest. I mean, I like to see, I mean, I'm more of a nuts and bolts, you know, liking to see the profitability piece Mm -hmm. of it. They've obviously built phenomenal businesses and are life-changing for so many people, including the workers that they, that, that service them. So I, I, don't know in terms of the question about venture capital propping up, um, I would definitely say maybe in the later stages like that very late stage capital coming in, you're seeing these huge rounds you know 100 million the number of hundred million dollar you know rounds has just you know skyrocketed. Series A has stayed really steady if you look at the numbers incredibly steady. And uh, and those later stage rounds have just gotten, you know, more and more numerous. So
0: last question for you is the is, last question. Yes. How does someone become a venture capitalist? You started at <laughs> P&G, then you become this, you know, the, you've, you started in chemical engineer background. Um, you move on to a credit card company. Your your story, obviously, everybody's story is going to be unique. But right. But what is the path somebody takes to to get to where you're sitting?
1: You know this is interesting. I get asked this all the time, usually by you know the people I went to Berkeley, and so people at Berkeley or Stanford. And there's not a good answer. There was a really good answer in law. you know, I went back to law school late in life, and uh, you know you do this and you do that and you get up the ranks. You know, in venture it's not it's not that way. And so I think almost everyone's path is a little different. I think there's some things you have to have. You have to have a fair amount of ADD, right? Because you have to be comfortable, you know, switching gears continuously and actually enjoy it, and get energy from that. I think that's important. I think you have to be incredibly curious. I think you have to be like a natural networker slash connector. Because what we're doing every day is pattern matching, uh, both on companies and people, right? And so trying to help the right person find the right opportunity within a company, um, it can be game changing for a company to get the right CMO or get the right head of engineering. And so I spend a lot of time on that, both from a, you know, when I'm looking at talent, it's from culture, from a cultural perspective, as well as just, you know, can they do this or not? So I think that that is really key. And uh, and I think it's the number one thing is the ability to live in a world of uncertainty. And so really to be able every day to kind of be very self-directed and self-guided and not have all the sort of constructs of a, of a normal job, right? Because, you know, there's a long time between when you make a decision to write a check and you actually get real true feedback, right, on whether that company's doing well or not. And, and there's a lot of work to be done. So I, th- I do think the really good VCs are sort of innate fixers. They're willing to come in and roll up their sleeves and help the founder and figure out, well, you know, where do you need me? Like, right? we're on the field. Can I be helpful to you? And then you step in and you help. And, and that's what I really enjoy doing personally. So I don't think I answered your question.
0: <laughs> Rebecca Lynn, partner at Canvas Venture. We hope you've enjoyed our interviews so far. We release them once a week in sets of 10, and that was number 10 for this set. So we'll take a couple of weeks to get back out there on Sand Hill Road to record interviews with more really interesting people, and we'll meet you back here mid-September. interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at, at PressHereTV.com.